Welcome to Night Sky Tourist, a place to learn the night sky, have fun with its ancient stories, meet astronomers and dark sky advocates, and fall in love with the dark. I'm Vicki Dirksen, your host and author of the website and blog, nightskytourist.com. If you've never visited the website, I invite you to stop by after the podcast. Check out some of the great blog articles, browse through the resource page, and sign up for the monthly newsletters. The newsletters have great content that is exclusive for subscribers. This episode is my summer solstice special, and I have a special interview that you are going to love. Our favorite NASA solar system ambassador, Ted Blank, is back to answer your questions, and we'll finish off with a naked eye tour across the night sky. Are you ready? Let's jump right in. I never expected that I'd have a guest return to the podcast so soon, but I think you're going to agree that this was a great decision. Josh Dury joined us from Bristol, England, and we discussed how the night sky is changing due to mega constellations of man-made satellites and light pollution. Well, a couple of weeks after that interview, Josh got a job at Stonehenge. Yes, the Stonehenge. In making plans for this summer solstice special, I started gathering summer solstice traditions from around the world. And you just cannot talk about the summer solstice without mentioning Stonehenge. So Josh and I exchanged a few messages about it, and it became clear to me that the real focus this year should be on Stonehenge alone, especially since Josh has an insider's look at this tremendous monument. Please join me tonight in welcoming Josh Dury back to the podcast. So Josh, thank you for joining us for a second time on Night Sky Tourist Podcast. You're our first return guest and I'm thrilled to have you again. Well, it's very kind to have you, Vicky, and thank you very much for inviting me this evening. So we have the summer solstice coming up in about a week and a half. And I wanted to make sure that we had a really cool special for the podcast for this. And after you were on the podcast a couple months ago, you got a job at Stonehenge. Oh, my God. (laughs) And so when I found that out and I knew the summer solstice was coming up, you and I chatted back and forth. And I decided we have to talk about Stonehenge for the summer solstice. So first of all, let's start with explaining the science behind the summer solstice. Tell us what's happening that makes this the longest day of the year. So in terms of astronomy, this is all determined by the Earth's orbit around the sun. We have to remember that the Earth is elliptical in nature in terms of its orbit, which resembles an egg-like shape. And during its orbit, at around the time of the summer solstice, it appears the closest to Earth and thus remarks a particular time when we can witness the summer solstice and the longest days and the shortest of nights. So this is crucial in our understanding of our place in the universe and more specifically how this relates to our ancestors and why places like Stonehenge and many other ancient sites are celebrated on the dawn of June the 21st, the summer solstice. 
And so for us in the Northern Hemisphere, we get the first day of summer. And the people in the Southern Hemisphere, it's winter time because of that tilt of the Earth. Exactly. It's all to do with the tilt of the Earth's, Earth's axis. Mm -hmm. And it's this which interprets the longest days and the shortest of nights. And also the long cold winter months in the Southern Hemisphere, but also the much hotter months in the Northern Hemisphere. Stonehenge is a really popular place for people to visit on the solstices, even the equinoxes. But for people who might not even really know what Stonehenge is, what is Stonehenge? So to many, they will view Stonehenge as a number of rocks in the middle of a field in the county of Wiltshire on Salisbury Plain. However, this is much more than simply just a pile of rocks in Wiltshire. This was once interpreted by our ancient ancestors as a Neolithic astronomical computer to predict the movements of the sun and the moon along the horizon. What we see at Stonehenge today is a prehistoric ruin which has survived the ravages of time since the time of prehistory, dating back as far as 2000 500 BC and it's since then that this monument has survived through the mists of time and now all we see is the remains of what was once an iconic ruin and what we have to do as astronomers and archaeologists is work with the remains that exist we have to use what we can see to interpret the future as to what Stonehenge may have once been used for so much so, when you look at Stonehenge today, you will see some stones still intact, where you will see two standing stones with a larger stone capping the top. This is known as a trilithon, and in particular inside of the monument, there are five of these trilithons. And it's believed through myth and legend that these trilithons mark the extreme positions of the sun and the moon. But, there is one important alignment, the midsummer sunrise, which still exists today. Through the central surviving arch, it's possible to witness the hillstone in the distance. So on the morning of June the 21st, as long as you have your clear sky, it is possible to witness the drama unfold, a door to the past, where we see the sun rise and create this ancient engagement an astronomical alignment which has existed for the best part of four and a half thousand years. So it's through this interpretation that these trilithons were used as windows to look through at heavenly bodies, that Stonehenge could be classified as an astronomical computer, but also be considered one of the eighth wonders of the ancient world. Yeah, I love looking at pictures of Stonehenge and especially on the solstices and seeing people gathered around and the sun coming up. They're beautiful images. And, you know, people did not always understand the science behind what was making a sol summer solstice. And so a lot of cultures and especially including the area of England there, um, they came up with elaborate traditions to be able to make sense of this day and to give it some kind of meaning. And so what is it that makes Stonehenge so special on the summer solstice? 
What makes it so special is that the summer solstice marks a crucial point in the astronomical calendar, a time where we celebrate warmth, fertility and life. For our ancestors, our deities, the sun and the moon may well have been interpreted as gods. So as our ancestors counted the days and used the windows and the arches to follow the positions of their gods along the horizon, they could determine these points for their survival. And that's one interpretation which I use, is that Stonehenge was used for the survival of our pre-ancestors, in the sense that when they knew the midsummer sun would rise over the hillstone, they would know this was a crucial marker to harvest their crops. And as the seasons carried on, they would see the sun move to its next position, ultimately another iconic alignment known as the midwinter sunset, which would mark a period of time when our ancestors would bring in their crops and prepare themselves for the long, cold winter months ahead. So already from the evidence that we have left, from what remains of this iconic ruin on Salisbury Plain, Stonehenge is celebrated in so many ways from so many different walks of life. And most importantly, it is a time where we can all connect through that moment which has survived for so many years. So much so we have Druidic celebrations where a Celtic priesthood, the Druids, will come to celebrate the summer solstice as they see the sun rise on Midsummer's Day. But revelers in their thousands would flock to Stonehenge. And in a typical year, we would anticipate to see approximately 30 thousand people revel at the site. However, it is due to circumstance we are uncertain on the position of the summer solstice this year. However, English Heritage are more than delighted to present the summer solstice using a virtual programme of events so that for viewers from around the world you'll be given the opportunity to see the sunrise on the longest day of the year. I love that you guys are able to do that because people like me, you know, it's not so easy to travel to a place, not only during COVID, but even during a regular year to go see something like that. And so I love that you guys offer that in a virtual uh, manner. What would you say are some of the cultural traditions connected to Stonehenge? Because, you know, like you, I really see the value in you know, ancient people using Stonehenge like a calendar to inform them of, like you said, you know, hey, it's time to bring in the crops or it's time to plant the crops. But there were a lot of other cultural traditions that were attached to it that weren't quite so scientific either. Can you share some of those with us? So some of them can relate on many different aspects, Vicky. And just a number to highlight on is that Stonehenge has brought revelers from all backgrounds of life whether that be from astronomers like ourselves to artists, poets, scientists, historians alike. But again, it's remembering how Stonehenge interpreted our place in the universe, but also the traditions which have changed throughout time. Considering that very recently, it was discovered that the initial stone circle within Stonehenge formed of bluestones, were, which were the ones transported all the way from Wales in the Preseli Mountains, was once believed to have been constructed by Merlin, Merlin the Wizard. 
But using this tradition, we already learn a lot from the tales of myth and legend. As these stones were erected, it's interpreted how Merlin was in fact the bearer of the blue stones, and thus could be the earliest interpretation we have to the first transportation of blue stones from Wales. So through the connections of a Welsh wizard to the blue stones, this could tell us some of the earliest mythology relating to Stonehenge. It's also interpreted that the stones used to float in the sky. This is some of the earliest descriptions given to a monument so iconic as Stonehenge, where stones would be balanced from one stone to the next, and how they were constructed as well through presence of the earliest mortise and tenon joints found in the Neolithic time. In this sense for your viewers, ancient Lego, as it were, as our ancestors were able to use the mortise and tenon joints to eventually bring the stones together to form its eccentric ring. What's also interesting as well is the construction of Stonehenge itself, the likes of Christopher Wren, who is so important for the construction of St Paul's Cathedral in London, actually took measurements of Stonehenge, to which he applied when he built the Great Dome that is now surviving at St Paul's Cathedral in London. So already there's so much change and so much interpretation through the years, old and new, to which we can apply to our overall understanding of Stonehenge today. If someone were to visit Stonehenge on the summer solstice, what should they expect? What, what should they expect from their experience from what time they would have to show up? What would the temperature typically be like? How many people would they be? You know, what would the whole expectation need to be? As one of my colleagues once explained to me, Stonehenge is one of the coldest places and it really is as well. When you're waiting on the dawn of summer solstice, you, I personally arrive at midnight and you are greeted to many people who celebrate exactly the same as you. You revel across the paths along the field to the monument field where you are greeted with thousands of people waiting for the same moment. They celebrate throughout the night with their cultures, traditions and beliefs as you wait to see the first point dawn of light come up above the horizon and gradually the atmosphere builds, the tension heightens as you wait to see the colours of day turn or night turn to day and in doing so in the hour building up to sunrise the atmosphere begins to change, everything goes quiet as everybody waits for that first beam of light along the horizon and for those of those who are lucky enough to see the sunrise from inside of the monument, they will see the ancestral alignment, which is, it still exists to this day. Mm -hmm. The sunrise over the hillstone, a dramatic time where a beam of light can be seen shining over revelers' heads to mark a crucial date in the astronomical calendar of Stonehenge. It's a dramatic event. And before you know it, at a time of 4.52 in the morning, everybody goes. They walk off. The alignment has happened. The revelers have done their bit in celebrating an iconic moment during the astronomical calendar. And so the summer solstice is one of two paths. 
very dramatic throughout the night, but as soon as the sunrise happens, they vanish as if it never happened. Mm. So if someone wants to participate in this virtually, like me, how would we do that? So the way to do it is to have a look on the English Heritage website. There they will provide a link where you'll be able to see a live webcam which will be streaming the sunrise live from Stonehenge. So for viewers watching, I recommend tuning in on the morning of the 21st of June, but bear in mind that sunrise will happen at Stonehenge from 4.52 a.m. GMT. And so try and tune in at least half an hour beforehand to revel at this amazing astronomical alignment. So I live in Arizona and you and I are about eight hours difference from each other. So, you know, people are going to need to get out their little clock converter, go online and convert the time so that they can make sure they don't miss that. You haven't been working at Stonehenge very long yet. What is your favorite thing so far about working at Stonehenge? I think, Vicky, the most lovely thing about working at Stonehenge is being greeted to like-minded people and being able to tell the story of Stonehenge, whether that be for its past and its present. Because you have to remember, for the revelers who will watch Sunrise on the Hillstone on June the 21st, is that Stonehenge has so much history. There is so much to learn from it even the modern history as to why we cannot go inside of the stones, why they are being conserved to be protected for future generations, and why on this couple of days, these special events which take place throughout the year, that access is permitted within inside the stones and to understand why Stonehenge is such an important place and to why it is designated as a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So this organization that oversees Stonehenge, you said it's called English Heritage, right? Yes, that's correct. And do they oversee other sites? They do, yes, in England. So aside from Stonehenge, English Heritage is important as a charity in conserving England's story and telling the story for future generations. We are a body that does its best to conserve England's past and the remains that exist of England's history, whether that be to the likes of Stonehenge or Dover Castle and so on. And all of these tell a crucial part in a visitor experience to compel the minds of generations alike and to tell our story of these fascinating places. Well, I hope that people go back and listen to the first interview that I did with you, which was in episode 13 of the podcast. Um, but for those who haven't listened to that yet, tell us a little bit about your website and what you do. Okay, guys. So my background primarily is within astrophotography and also as a filmmaker and a fellow night sky conservationist with Vicky. So if you'd like to see more of my astrophotography, you can catch that at www joshjoryphotomedia.com. Otherwise, you can view my social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram using the hashtag joshjoryphotomedia. I'll be sure to put the links to all of that in the show notes, as well as a link to the English Heritage website so that people can watch this event virtually. 
Josh, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to make it over there and I'm going to see this for myself. <laughs> and you're going to give me the tour. <laughs> oh, sure I would, Vicky. Don't you worry. <laughs> All in good time in the future. Thank you. And thank you for having me, Vicky. I love getting great night sky and astronomy related questions from our listeners. Each question is answered by Ted Blank, a NASA Solar System Ambassador. Our first question tonight comes from Jeff in Arizona. Hi, Vicki. As we know, the night sky is always changing. So if we were looking for the Milky Way this time of year, where in the sky should we look? And what's the best time to look for it? Thanks for your question, Jeff. The best time and place to see the Milky Way is in the summer from a dark location when the moon is not present in the sky. Gazing up, you'll see a broad, faint band of light passing through several constellations, including Cygnus the Swan and Cassiopeia. When your nose is pointed right at this band of light, you are looking edgewise through the great pancake of stars that is our galaxy. It's hundreds of billions of stars, each too faint to see by itself, contributing their tiny sparks to that glowing belt of light that we call the Milky Way. Jeff, where I grew up in northern Idaho, it was pretty easy to see the Milky Way. It didn't look like the amazing long exposure photos that we often see, but you could clearly see where it was. And it's sad that 80% of the people on Earth can no longer see the Milky Way at all because of light pollution. If you follow Ted's suggestion and go to a really dark location, you'll be in for an amazing experience. Our next question comes from my cousin Chris in Alaska. My name is Chris and I'm from Alaska. I know the moon is tidally locked with the Earth, meaning that it rotates at the same speed as its orbit around the Earth, resulting in the same side of the moon facing the Earth at all times. Before it became tidally locked, was the moon spinning faster or slower than its orbit? And how long did it take to become tidally locked after its formation? Chris, thanks for your question. I really had to do some research on this one. To the best of my knowledge, after its formation, it took a very short time for the moon to become tidally locked to Earth with the same side facing us all the time. One estimate I found suggested that after the moon was formed about 4 billion years ago, it might have taken as little as 15 million years for its initial fast rotation period to slow down to be equal to its orbital period, which is the requirement for the same side to face us all the time. That's only 2% of the age of the solar system. Chris, although I know that the moon's rotation speed is matched to its orbit speed, causing the same side of the moon to face us all the time, I've never thought to ask your question. I'm glad you asked it because we've all learned something interesting about its past. Thank you, Jeff and Chris, for your questions. If you have a question for our podcast, please record a voice memo and email it to us at nightskytourist at gmail.com. You can also visit nightskytourist.com slash podcast for more details and tips on how to send it. It's time for our tour across the night sky. Pause the podcast, gather everyone in your house, and I'll meet you outside under the stars.
Did you get to see the super blood moon last month? Blood moons fascinate me, and I also enjoy learning about the mythologies and the superstitious beliefs formed across various cultures around the world about them. I've written about those mythologies and superstitions on my website. Check out the show notes for a link to that article. The next blood moon, which is actually a total lunar eclipse, will be on November 19th, but will only be able to be seen by those living in Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe. If you live in North or South America, mark your calendar for May 15th, 2022. That's when you'll be able to see the next blood moon, although only those living in the Eastern United States will see the moon turn red. Let's turn to tonight's sky. Start by facing south, but turn your gaze toward the western sky. If you're looking during dusk, you'll see Gemini, the twins, and they'll look like they're standing with their feet firmly planted on the horizon. Mercury's brief appearance has passed and it's now obscured by the light of the sun, but Venus is now visible in the center of Gemini. Mars has moved on from Gemini and is now hanging out in the very dim stars of the constellation Cancer. If you are listening to this episode on the night that it is released, June 12th, you'll see that the thin waxing crescent moon is about halfway between Venus and Mars. And then tomorrow, June 13th, you can find the moon on the other side of Mars. That's how much it moves in one night. If you want to see Jupiter and Saturn, well, you'll have to be patient. Saturn will rise in the east at almost midnight, and Jupiter will rise in the same place an hour later. You'll notice that Leo, the lion, is sinking closer to the horizon now. And to the east of Leo is the second largest constellation, Virgo, the virgin or the maiden. We learned a great ancient star story about Virgo in episode 14. Now look a little farther east to find Libra. Libra looks like a triangle set sideways in the sky. And if you're having trouble finding it, look farther east for Scorpius. Now, Scorpius truly looks like a giant scorpion in the sky. He's still sitting low in the eastern sky in the early evening. So once you have found Scorpius, move back toward the west a little bit and look for the triangle on its side. That is Libra. It's the weighing scales. Imagine old-fashioned weighing scales laying on its side in the night sky. The triangle is at the top of the instrument with two stars dangling from either side. We're going to hang out with Libra for just a moment. You might be interested to know that astronomers have discovered three stars in Libra that have planets. In ancient Babylonian astronomy, Libra was known as the scales or the balance, but it was also known as the claws of Scorpius. The Babylonian sun god, Shamash, was the patron of truth and justice, and the scales were sacred to him. In those ancient days, the sun entered Libra at the time of the fall equinox, and some people suggested that scales are an allusion to that equalness of day and night at that time of year. But the sun is now in Virgo at the time of the fall equinox due to what's called the precession of the earth which is the way it wobbles as it spins. But that's a discussion for another day. Across the cultures and across the centuries, Libra is associated with justice, which is one of the most important moral principles when it comes to law and politics. As already mentioned, Scorpius is now rising straight up from the eastern horizon right now. 
Can you spot Antares, the reddish colored star in Scorpius? It is known as the heart of the scorpion, but we're going to learn more about this constellation in a future episode. Let's find one more thing in the night sky tonight. Start by facing east toward the great scorpion as it rises up from the eastern horizon. Now move your eyes along the horizon toward the north until you find a really bright star that is about as high in the sky as the top of Scorpius. That is the star Vega in the constellation Lyra. Look down to Vega's lower left and you will find Deneb in the constellation Cygnus. Now look to Vega's lower right to find Altair in the constellation Aquila. Now connect these three really bright stars, Vega, Deneb, and Altair, and you have dislocated what astronomers call the Summer Triangle. If you were under really dark skies, you would notice that the Milky Way flows right through the middle of these three stars. We'll keep our eye on the Summer Triangle as it makes its way across the sky through the next few months. Don't miss our next tour where we learn more about the amazing constellation of Scorpius. Since Venus is prominent in the night sky right now, this week's recommendation is my blog article about Venus where I share about how this planet has two names, known as both the morning star and the evening star. There are some fantastic mythologies attached to this super bright planet that is a twin of Earth. I'll throw out a hint. Think Lucifer. And if you're as obsessed with the Netflix show Lucifer like I am, you might be interested in how the main character's full name ended up being Lucifer Morningstar. And if you've been following the news, you'll know that NASA has announced two new missions to Venus to study this lost habitable world. Check out our show notes at nightskytourist.com 16 for a link to my article called Venus, the Planet with Two Names and a link to the news article about NASA's upcoming missions. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Night Sky Tourist podcast. If you enjoy the Night Sky Tourist podcast, please show your support by subscribing to it in your podcatcher and leave a written review. Your reviews are really important to me and they help others discover the podcast. Be sure to visit nightskytourist.com for great articles and resources. And while you're there, sign up for the monthly newsletter for exclusive content. Click on the podcast tab to find instructions for submitting your question for a future episode. Thank you to Josh Dury for sharing with us about the amazing Stonehenge Monument in England. And be sure to check out our show notes for links to important resources and all of the things that we talked about in this episode. You can find the show notes at nightskytourist.com 16. We'll see you here again in two weeks. Have a very happy summer solstice and keep looking up.